0: Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Yay!
1: Hey! <laughs> Here we are! <laughs> Welcome to Saturday again! Except this time it's Saturday in our new set! That's right! <laughs> our new, our new look! Yes. This is it. This is it. But in case you're new, welcome to All The Things. Okay. I am
0: Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Traeger. And this is the show. Where we
1: talk about all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. Sorry, I almost stepped on your line there. I was just, yeah, but you know, it's okay. All right, I'll, I'll talk. We're live. Uh,
0: so we want to invite you to add your voice to the conversation tonight. Uh, this is a show where we actually read the comments in the live stream and interact with them. And we know that you are going to um, enjoy the lively discussion we're going to have tonight with our friend Katie Faust. Um, so jump in the comments and ask your questions. Tonight's moderators are Allison Wardrip and Laura Hartley. And just jump on there and let us know um, in the comments where you're watching, that you're watching, and what you think of our new set. It's uh Took us a long time. We should probably say we started the process of refreshing the set all the way back in January.
1: Yes. It's was. it it's been it's, a journey. It's been a journey. <laughs> we shouldn't talk about the journey, but it's been a journey. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I want to say hello to Gwenda and April P, who's watching for the first time. Oh, my. Live. What's up? Hey, Alexa. My goodness. All right. There's so, a lot of
0: people. So. I do want to give a quick shout out to our friends, Lenny and Helena from uh, our old church, who helped us uh, with the construction yes. on the set. Very, very patient with all of our indecision and um, Also everything. known as
1: shenanigans.
0: <laughs> Lenny, who came up with uh, a lot of creative solutions for us. So we
1: are very grateful um, for the very practical ways that they helped us out. Yes. Now, you can support the show. By, did you already tell them, liking the show, sharing the show, send it to your friends, send it to your enemies. If you want to bother somebody, go ahead, send it to them. People who knew Jesus, people who love Jesus, you know, send it out. Help get the word out that all the things is here and that this conversation is happening. Um, this is going to be an important conversation for how we fight for the rights of children. Also, our show is brought to you by Family 210 Clothing. Uh, the Theology Mom Podcast. The Center for Biblical Unity. And Impact
0: 360. Yes. In fact, we've got a uh, fresh design we want to show you um, from Family 210 Clothing. Just um, Bob's going to get it up there. I don't co-parent with the government. So that's kind of fun. Yes. It's uh, my first uh, Theology Mom design. And uh, te- about $10 of every purchase goes to help the ministry. So... We appreciate
1: your support. Um, yeah. Okay, let's get into it. Now, I met Katie Faust at the MAVEN conference in February. March or February, yeah. February, February. march there. Yeah. yeah. Early spring. So, that was kind
0: of your first Katie Faust encounter.
1: Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. And I, I'll be honest, and I told her, like, um... When when I first heard her, I was like, I don't I don't know about this. I don't know. It was hard for you. It was. It was, and I, I told her all about it. And then I we were at the Wea conference, Women in Apologetics, and we were both there, like all three of us Just were hanging there. out
0: in the green room.
1: And yeah, hanging get, out, and, getting to know each other. Yes, and um, but no, she wasn't actually in the green room this time. It was us and Katian. Oh yeah, and. I, t- I brought up the book and I was like, I don't know about this. I don't know. And they were like, no, you've got to read the book and it'll explain everything. And I was like, OK. And so I listened to her speak at WIA and then um, I got the book and it it literally explained all the things. I was like, OK. And so I can't, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because it's been a conversation for me that's been rather difficult.
0: It has. And, you know, we've said this on the show before that. There are some conversations that we delay because one of us or both of us need time to process, learn, and be in our own growth and process. And um, so we've known of Katie and what she's working on and and her. For a while. For for a while. But, you know, we needed to have our own journey with things. And we don't just put people on the show just willy nilly because it's popular or we want to have clickbaity. Um, topics or improving our analytics like yeah improving our analytics is always great but our main goal is that when we're putting somebody on the show we're really trying to make sure that we're putting people out there that you know we believe in yeah in their message
1: yeah i remember you were on board with her message for a while because even at maven you were like you should invite her on the show go talk to her and i was (laughs) like i'm not ready for that (laughs) yeah i don't know about that yet um but love her heart for kids for family for yeah. humans um the human person and so we are going to get into this conversation because people are like well yeah. who is this katie well i think the the,
0: uh, the only thing we would ask is that you know if people have questions jump on the live stream ask them
1: do you but know q a is her most favorite time I, i've heard this yes. yes it is like i was like you so she to-
0: loves the questions yes. But I think you know, just hear hear her out, hear out the the point of view, and um, you know, give her book a look. um, Definitely, you know, to uh, really work out. I guess the way I see it is, what Katie's trying to do is is provoke our thinking in how do we live out a biblical worldview all the way,
1: all the way, the whole way.
0: If we're gonna really say that we're for children, we're for family, we're pro life, we've got to think about how are we gonna work that out all the way. So it's not just a nice slogan. It's not just a nice idea. How are we going to put some, some meat on the bones with that? Yeah. Let's so. bring in Katie. All right. Let's
2: bring her on. Hey, Katie. Hello. Hi. Nice intro. Uh, I just am like everybody who doesn't know who I am and what I do must be like, what is, what is this? I know, right. Hey, <laughs> I mean, what's going on here? So that's great. This is how I like it. We want people on the edge of their seat. Yes. <laughs> it's going to change your life.
0: All right. So maybe just give people kind of the one minute introduction to you and and uh, what you're up to or what you think that people should know about you.
2: Yeah, I'm a pastor's wife. I live in Seattle. I'm like one of 11 Christians that still lives here. Oh, I have uh, four great kids. They're all almost teenagers. Uh, I've got 12, 14, 16 and just turned 19 and teenagers are fantastic. Uh, don't fear it. Um I really was just a very nice person and was not involved in the culture wars at all until about 10 years ago. And then the battle of marriage kind of came to my state. And what I heard the other side saying is, you know, the people that advocated for gay marriage were saying kids don't need moms and dads. And um, I'd been working with kids and doing youth ministry for a couple of decades. I'd never met a kid who wasn't raised by their mom or dad who did not mourn in some way about it. Um, because that's really what the other side was saying is kids love it if they have two moms or two dads, but what that means is they've lost their mom or dad. So I like to keep my friends. I don't actually love confrontation. Um, but when I saw what I feel like was one of the first waves of this sort of progressive social policy, really harming kids. That's when I felt like I I need to do something, even if it means I'm going to be unpopular, even if it means that I lose some friends, um, I need to start speaking up. And so I blogged for a while. And then in 2018, I started the nonprofit them before us. And the whole idea is put them, the children before us, the adults in all conversations about marriage and family. That
0: gets us right into your book. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the big idea of the
2: book and what what prompted you to write it. Yeah, the big idea of the book is when it comes to marriage and family, adults should not, not ask children to sacrifice for them. If I could just summarize the whole thing, it's that adults need to do hard things for kids rather than insisting that kids do hard things for adults. Um, when we look at issues of marriage and family, a lot of times we think that they are disconnected issues. You know, there's divorce and there's same-sex marriage and there's same-sex parenting. And now there's this open non-monogamy that the New York Times is like promoting every week or whatever. Um, There's reproductive technologies, sperm and egg donation and surrogacy. And there's even adoption and even just the definition of marriage and all of this. A lot of times we think that Those are a bunch of different issues, but the reality is they're all asking the same question. They all come down to the same concept, which is, are you respecting the rights of children or are you disregarding the rights of children? And specifically the rights that we are defending at them before us is children's right to their mother and father. Um, And that's a right that maybe some people are unfamiliar with, but all of you are very familiar with parental rights. All of you understand that when you leave the hospital with a newborn after you've given birth, you don't want just any kid in the nursery. You want your kid. In fact, you have a natural right to that child. You have a fundamental pre-political relationship that needs to be respected and protected with that person. And so we all understand, well duh, of course, you've got a natural right to your own child. Well, guess what? Children also have a right to the two people responsible for their existence. And when we defend that right, we create children that are whole and healthy. We stack the deck in the favor in favor of their thriving. When we disregard that right, um, we see massive social ills cropping up everywhere. Um, because children who suffer family breakdown, specifically children who whose right to their father has not been protected, um, are much more vulnerable to crime. To to becoming criminals, to becoming teen parents, to uh, becoming teens that are homeless, to living in child poverty, um, to dropping out of school, right? All of these major social ills that we see have something in common. And it is that these children tend to be disproportionately fatherless or products of broken homes. So if we can respect children's right to their mother and father, not only do we stack the deck in favor of their thriving, but our society thrives as well. So that's sort of the big idea of the book. We go issue by issue on all of these different marriage and family topics. And we look at it from the perspective of the child, from the perspective of children's right to their mother and father. And the thing that obviously the book is, well, not obviously, but we have a lot of good research because the research is on our side. But what the book has that very few other resources have is the stories, the stories of more than a hundred kids who grew up in modern families so that you can really hear their own voice in terms of how it impacted them to have had their right to their mother and father violated.
1: That's, that's extremely helpful. Um, the, as someone who's read the book, the, The stories themselves are extremely powerful and it really serves to back up the data and um, really brings the reader or the listener. I listen to it on Audible. It brings the listener in more Um, as you're talking about like children having a right to their mother and father. How would you define like children's rights at like the more of the kitten caboodle as just opposed to like, this would just be a, a piece of children's rights. They have a right to their mother and father. How can you, um, how, yeah. Can you help us kind of think through what are children's rights?
0: Yeah. Because just to add to that, like we've been very I- critical on the show about critical child studies and, and you know, the, the, the rise of this um, as one of the critical social theories, but because they, they sometimes use the same or similar yeah. phraseology of children's rights so people might be confused, well, how is this different than what other entities are advocating as children's rights?
2: Yeah, it's a really important question. And I actually get that so much more from conservatives than my progressive friends, uh, because in, in my friends on the left have a very positive connotation, a very positive um, association with the term children's rights. But that's because what, the way that they've heard it is a term that is used wrongly. Um, you know, in their mind and the way that it's promoted, even globally, even by um, international Planned Parenthood and um, different branches of the United Nations. They have policies, they've got programs around the world that promotes children's rights. But usually what they mean by that is children's sexual rights, their right to sexual pleasure, their right to access transgender uh, treatment, um, you know, cross-sex hormones, their right to have a, a sexual identity hidden from their parents at school. So, I understand that that is how it's popularly used in culture, but it's it's erroneous. That's not what children's rights are. What we advocate for is children's rights based in natural law, right? It is a theory about how natural law is a school of philosophy on how you know what you ought to do based on looking at the natural world. So I'm a Christian. I carry my Bible around with me everywhere I go. I try to read the Bible with every woman that I'm with. You won't find a Bible verse in this book. Um, it is a book that is going to make the case based on not the revealed word of god but the revealed world of god right the world that god has revealed to us has all the information that we need to back up his prescription for sex and marriage so i am making a case based on natural law a philosophical school of thought that says we can look at the natural world and know what we ought to do and guess what the best research and social science and now the stories of kids are going to validate that natural law this is the natural law that Martin Luther King Jr. used to advocate against bad civil laws, right? He said, look, the natural law is the true law and an unjust law. And what he meant is an unjust law that, it, that goes against natural law is no law at all. And that's exactly what pro-lifers have been advocating for for the last 50 years. They said children have a natural right to life, I don't care what your laws say. This is a foundational natural right that all human beings have. And we're going to advocate for it. We're going to forward and advance it regardless of whether or not the law recognizes it. So children also have a natural right to their mother and father. And just for the lay person out there, uh, my co-author, Stacey, and I, neither of us are natural lawyers. Um, Neither of us are polished politicians, Um, so we sort of have this simple way of understanding what a natural right is, because what you'll notice in (laughs) everywhere that you look, but certainly the way the left falsely uses the term children's rights is you'll notice that anything that they really, really want suddenly becomes a right. And so you hear about all kinds of rights, a right to housing, a right to government funded birth control, um, or the right to choose, right? Anything that they want, they will label as a right but there really are some natural rights. And the way that we distinguish those natural rights is we have in chapter one, what we call the three rules that make it a right test. And this is just kind of helpful, you know, helpful to me when I'm hearing other people talk. Um, There's three things that you can, if it meets these criteria, it's a natural right. So the first one is it existed before the government, right? It doesn't exist because of government, it existed pre-government. So think about like your right to life. Your life existed before the government existed, um, in terms of like government systems that were created around the world, right? The government does not offer it to you. You simply have it. If it's a good government, it'll protect that right. Uh, The second one is um, nobody has to provide it for you, right? So if you have to dig it up through a well, bottle it, ship it, label it, put it on the grocery store shelves, you might need it. It might be important, but it's not a natural right. And the third one is, everybody has the same distribution of this right. So your right to free speech, your ability to speak, your ability to associate, your ability to worship, your ability to defend yourself, right? We all have the same amount of that. We all have the same amount of life, one. And we all have the same amount of parents, biological parents, two. We all get one of each, one mother and one father. And so we can see that both a child's right to life and a child's right to their mother and father meet these three rules that make it a right test. These are natural rights. And that is what we're defending. We are not defending some ideological, some kind of ideological scheme that is cloaking itself under the guise of children's rights to really push forward what is much more of an adult agenda than something that actually serves and protects children.
0: That's really helpful. Um, I think that the word rights can be so confusing yes. these days. So I really appreciate the fact that you've you've thought about it. You're kind of breaking it down in, in everyday language. That's really helpful.
1: I appreciate the clarity, like just no holds barred. I think that's that's what got me a wee too. It was just like, bam, here it is. Yeah. When would you say that the rights of a child begin?
2: Yeah. So children's rights are human rights. Um, And, you know, everybody will say women's rights are human rights and trans rights are human rights. Okay, well, if children are humans, they have a right. Their rights begin the moment they become human. So they have human rights at the moment of conception, because that is when a distinct human person begins. Interestingly, if that one cell zygote exists, their mother and father also exist. And so children automatically have a right to life and they automatically have a right to the two people responsible for their existence. And so this is something that once the child is in existence, we have to fiercely defend their right to their mother and father. And as I think we'll talk about tonight, you know, there are cultural, legal, and technological changes that are seeking to strip children of their right to their mother and father. So it's something that we have to think way, way back, you know, to the moment of conception and then work our way forward. And then we have to protect those rights that children have to their mother and father all through their childhood Um, because children need their mom and dad the day that they're born. They need them when they're two months old. They need both of them when they're two years old. They still need both of them when they're 12 years old. A lot of 22 year olds would even say, I still, I still desperately need, I get something different from my mom and dad. They're so important to me. So this connection and this relationship that children have to their parents, it matters throughout their life, but it's especially critical during childhood.
0: I think um, that leads us right into some important things that we need to probe related to reproductive technologies. Mm. Um, now i'm uh, you know I'm uh getting up there in age a little more than I feel comfortable with, but uh when I was in seminary thirty years ago, if you can believe this i I took a class on medical ethics, and um this was kind of before these technologies were actually existing, but they were on the horizon, and we talked about them in my seminary class of how would you counsel someone who was an infertile couple and they came in your office and you had to counsel them and knowing that these emerging technologies were on the horizon, things like in vitro fertilization. Because if we're going to say and make the the bold claim that life begins at conception, which last week we had an OBGYN on the show, so we got all the medical things on all of those understandings so that that zygote has its own unique dna Mm -hmm. it is a human person and so if we're saying that that has very direct implications for when we're talking about some of these reproductive technologies like in vitro fertilization sadly i don't think that many christians have connected all of those dots and, and thinking that all the way through of how does my worldview connect to something like surrogacy, IVF. Um, last week on the show, we talked a little bit about birth control. These are all interconnected issues. So let's start with surrogacy. I remember hearing about surrogacy for the first time 30 years ago in that class. My professor had some very big ethical concerns about surrogacy Now we're living in an age where it's becoming increasingly normalized. So talk to us about what you see about surrogacy and potential barriers to children's
2: rights. Good. I'll take just one more step back um, and and let's talk briefly about reproductive technologies. So what that is doing. Really, from a child-centric perspective, if you're going to make a baby in a laboratory, because that's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about making babies in vitro, in glass, in a laboratory. You have to have three things, right? You need to put together sperm, egg, and womb, okay? Those are the three different commodities that you're going to need to acquire, purchase, and assemble. And sometimes you're going to bring your own egg, but you're going to need to purchase a sperm. You can use your own womb. Sometimes you don't have an egg, you don't have a womb, you've got a sperm, right? So you purchase the egg from somebody else, you rent the womb of another woman and maybe the man provides a sperm and maybe he takes that baby home and raises it as a single man, right? Maybe there's no woman at all. So there are all kinds of ways that you can mix and match when it comes to uh, reproductive technologies. Um, And so anytime a child is intentionally losing their biological mother, their biological father or their birth mother, what you're really doing is you're saying, hey, kid, you need to suffer loss so that I can have what I want. Because all of those three 3 things, the biological mother, the biological father, and the birth mother matter deeply to children. And these losses are often lifelong losses. Now, sometimes children lose their birth mother, for example, to adoption, or I'm sorry, in an adoption situation, there's a tragedy. Um, maybe the parents are not in They have to relinquish because they are not really in a place to parent. Um, I'm an adoptive mom. I am very pro-adoption when it's properly understood. And when it's properly understood, we understand that it begins with loss. I understand that I cannot fully compensate for everything that my son has lost. Adoption is good and redemptive, but... I didn't choose his loss, I am seeking to mend his loss. Now that is a really big difference when it comes to sperm donation, egg donation, and surrogacy. In those situations, the adults that are raising the children chose the loss for the child. They chose to separate the child from their biological father. They chose to interrupt that critical maternal bond with the child's birth mother. Um, And so there, I have a whole chapter in the book about adoption and why adoption supports children's rights but third party reproduction, where you're using a third party, a sperm donor, egg donor or surrogate to create a child, why that violates children's rights. A lot of times people think these are the same things, they're not, they're exactly the opposite. Um, And we go through four different ways that adoption supports children's rights and reproductive technologies violate children's rights. So now let's talk a little bit about IVF in general, because let's say that you're using the husband's sperms, the wife egg, and you're going to insert the baby into the biological mother, right? Um, Into her womb. So the first major issue with IVF is that there's a lot of baby killing happening in IVF. Like, I'm just gonna say it to you straight. Only about 7% of lab created babies are born alive. 93% will not survive the process. And I think there's a lot of pro-lifers that have never thought about that. Um, but all you have to do right now is Google or get on Twitter and take a look at how all of the fertility doctors are freaking out in red states. right? All of the fertility doctors that are located in red states right now, um, where they're going to have strict abortion laws are saying, we, not, we might not be able to do business in Alabama we might, we could, we may not have to, we might have to close our clinic in Louisiana because discarding human life is so foundational to their business model. It is so important for them to, if you're going to get the right baby, you have to discard a lot of other babies. Usually that happens within the first few days as the baby is developing. Um, They'll do some genetic screening or testing and decide which embryos are the most viable. And they will discard the ones that are not or which embryos are the right sex or the wrong sex and they'll discard the ones that are the wrong sex. And then maybe they'll take the t- the batch of 10 that are good embryos. They'll insert two and they'll freeze eight of them. Well, sometimes you never go back for the other eight. Sometimes those other eight live their entire lives in a freezer. And so and then oh my gosh and then Um, selective reduction is very, very common, especially in surrogacy contracts. And selective reduction is just a fancy word for abortion because when you are paying six figures for a baby, abortion serves as quality control and quantity control. So abortion is standard issue, uh, standard language in almost every surrogacy contract. So like when you start talking these things through, you recognize that IVF is not a child-friendly process. It is really about designer babies. And once you involve surrogacy, it's about on demand designer babies shipped worldwide. So, anytime you're there, are ways to use reproductive technologies in ways that don't violate children's right to life, that don't violate a child's right to their mother and father, that don't violate a child's right to the bond they have with their birth mother. But those scenarios are often so cost prohibitive that even good Christian pro-life couples don't have the money, don't have the money to do it.
0: If me, they're
2: going
0: to go ahead. Yeah. Let me just kind of tease out a couple of points that you made just because I don't want them to pass by people mm-hmm. too quickly. Some people may not even really be familiar with how IVF works. And so what often happens is an infertile couple will get some kind of referral to a clinic and, and there's a harvesting from what I understand, a harvesting of eggs and then from the woman and then those are either through the sperm of the the father, the husband in the picture or some random stranger um, that you can pick as a sperm donor will get fertilized and then the more eggs are harvested than will be used. This is the 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 default common practice now when i was in this medical ethics class 30 years ago the way that my seminary professor said that we should advise couples is only to allow doctors to harvest as many eggs as the couple would feel comfortable raising so if that's three then you only allow the doctor to harvest three eggs because you're going to implant those three and see what happens. Um, I'm wondering if you see that as a potential strategy that would be more consistent with a pro life ethic.
2: Yeah. So just to clarify, um, if you are, so sperm is very easy to access. Eggs are very difficult to access. And so if a woman is going to extract her eggs either to donate them, and I say donate because nobody's, this isn't a nonprofit. Nobody's donating anything. People are buying and selling. They are buying eggs, they are selling eggs. They are buying sperm, they are selling sperm. They are buying entire embryos. They are selling entire embryos, okay? And so the eggs are hard to get to. Women have to inject themselves with hormones for weeks, prior to extracting eggs. Why? Because normally we women only release one egg a month, but if you're going to go in there and you're going to extract eggs, you need a few more than that. And so women will juice up their bodies with so many hormones that sometimes they're it's, it's medically risky, right? Because the the ovaries will swell. Um, Often there's a lot of medical risk involved, and then they will extract sometimes eight eggs, sometimes 20 eggs, right And those eggs are gone forever right So if you're a young healthy woman and you're on campus and you're seeing all of these ads for make some quick money and become an egg donor, you're sacrificing your future fertility and you're creating babies that someday are probably going to seek you out and look for you um, and you're you're impairing the possibility of having your own children in the future okay so this is a this is a risky process. So I don't think that there's anything sacred about egg or sperm, But once you mix egg and sperm, that's a human and that human has rights. And so what your professor I think was saying is that if you're going to do this ethically, who cares how many eggs or sperm you have from a children's rights perspective? Who cares how many egg and sperm? Once the egg and sperm come together, now there's rules. The rules are, in my opinion, all of the egg and all of the sperm has to come directly from the mother and father that are going to be raising them. Number two, you have to implant everything right? If you make three, you implant three. I would say no freezing, right? Because a lot of time those frozen babies, they never make it out of the freezer because sometimes life happens, you know, um, no selective reduction. And so if you implant three and all three of them become identical twins, now you have six. What are you going to do now? Right? So multiples are very, very common in reproductive technologies, um, because they tend to implant a lot, hoping that a few of them take, Um, no sex selection, right? You can't say, well, we have three embryos, two are girls, one is boy. We would really like a boy and a girl. So we're going to discard one of the girls, right? So you, you have to use these technologies in ways that respect children's right to life and right to the mother and father. So what we've just explained, what your professor suggested, what I've just talked about, it's possible, but because IVF has such high failure rates, most people have to come back multiple times to have one child or more. And it's expensive to go through that that process each time. So if you're going to make a batch of babies, you may as well make 10 because it's gonna cost Mm you $20,000 to make two or 10. So you may as well make 10 and then have extras. The problem is that right now we have about 1 million children on ice in this country. And anywhere from 20 to 40% of them have been functionally abandoned. We can't find their parents. They've stopped paying the storage fee. Um, most of these children will never emerge from the freezer. And even if they do, in whose body are they going to gestate? Will they ever be able to find their parents? So this whole thing of, of making babies rather than begetting babies, um, you know, designing babies rather than receiving babies, it has pretty serious. Just that mindset has pretty serious consequences for the child. So I do think that you can use not third party. Third party reproduction is off the table. It's always going to violate children's right to life. I think that there are ways that you can use reproductive technologies in ways that don't violate children's right to life. That you don't violate children's right to their mother and father. Children also have a right to not be commodified, to not be purchased, to not be bought and sold. Um, and many of these people we spend an entire chapter sharing their stories, feel incredibly designed and commodified um, because of this commercial process that was part of their conception. So I think that you need to use reproductive technologies in ways where no child bears a cost for what adults want. And that's a very hard message because there there are good fantastic people that would be amazing parents who are saddled with this burden of infertility. And it's a crushing, crushing load. But the solution cannot be to hand a crushing load to a child. Let me
0: ask a clarifying question about what you mean by using third party, like that's off the table. Like, Tell me a little bit more about what, what that means.
2: Yeah, it just means using somebody else's eggs, somebody else's sperm, or somebody else's womb, right? It takes two to make a baby, a man and a woman, Um, the woman provides the egg and the womb. Um, that's how nature made it. Nature made it very difficult to split those two, split that woman into two. Right. Um, and that's by design because children need that woman. They need all of that found in one woman whenever possible. Um, and so anytime you're going outside of those two, you're using a third party, somebody else's sperm, somebody else's egg, somebody else's womb. Um, anytime using third party in your reproduction, you're violating children's right to life. I'm sorry, right to their mother and father.
1: Is there a time when you can see IVF as not being problematic? Like, can you walk us through that? Or is it always problematic?
2: So... We are, sti- we are just starting to learn about the harms of making babies in laboratories. So what I've said is kind of a bare bones, don't cross this line, but we are seeing that children that are created through IVF do have more struggles um, cognitively, developmentally. Um, anytime you are, IVF pregnancies are higher risk pregnancies in terms of preterm labor, um, So there is still a cost, even if you're respecting child's right to life, right to their mother and father, right to be born free and not bought and sold. We, there are still risks to the child and that's something that you need to look very seriously at. Um, Is your drive and desire to have a child worth the increased risk of the child as they develop? Um, So I think we're gonna be learning more about that, but think about it. It's, this is the first time our, our species has ever made babies without sex are making them in glass and, some, and sometimes we're freezing them. Do you think that that's a good way to make children? Um, and the hard thing is that it's very hard to study. Um, it's very hard to study the outcomes of children, for example, who have sperm donor fathers or who are created through IVF, because a lot of these children don't know that they were created that way. And so later on, if you want to go back and look at Um, did you, did you struggle in school or did you have attachment issues or whatever it is? It's very hard to study a demographic that does not know that they belong in that demographic. So, um, I think that we're going to see more and more, hopefully, as we hopefully study this more so people can get a better idea of what kind of costs they're really asking the child to bear for them. I don't know. I don't know if there's a way to make babies in laboratories and have it be good for the kid.
0: I think it's a difficult topic because ivf and to some degree surrogacy has become so normalized that infertile couples and infertility is definitely on the rise that this is sought after as a potential solution to a, a real problem
1: I don't, I don't think just infertile people like somebody recommended it to me like few years ago as being a single person and so or you know gay couples or you know things like that but it it definitely is like you're saying it I can see it being on the rise I think that infertile people though are like or infertile couples are just one demographic but there's a big demand I would say from other demographics too
0: yeah I guess I'm just thinking about people who might Hear what you're saying. They're Christians. They're pro-life. They've thought of themselves as pro-life, but they hadn't really thought IVF all the way through and some of the ethical implications of that. I'm wondering if you could maybe speak to that a little bit if for for those people of they've already done it. You know, they're they're already there.
2: Yeah. Um, well, a lot of the ones that have already done it. Um, number one, thank God, they have beautiful kids that they that have survived the process, but many of them also have come up to me and said, that was not what I signed up for. Um, And the emotional uh, roller coasters that kind of go along with it, even struggles bonding and attaching um, because of different dynamics with the children that they ended up having. But the biggest issue is that many of them now have full biological children in freezers, but now she's 50. You know, they made the babies when she was 40 and and thankfully had two kids, but now she's 50 and now she would be a serious high-risk pregnancy. What do they do with those four kids? What do they do with those four kids that are just as much their children as the two kids sitting at the breakfast table? Do they, you know, the options that the American Society of Reproductive Medicine gives them is thaw and discard. (laughs) I mean- which is like the most dehumanizing language ever, right? Thaw and discard, donate to research, right? Which is usually like experiment on these embryos to figure out how we can improve fertility treatments in the future, right? So destroy some babies to make future babies. Um, You could donate them to another couple, which is treated as a property transaction and, or you can adopt them out, right, to somebody else. But even that has incredible uh, ethical pitfalls for the parents, but especially for the children. So I hear regret from some people. I mean, even though they're celebrating the children that they do have, there was a lot, especially for Christians, especially for people who are pro-life, it was a real eye-opener going through this process for them. A lot of them had to fight to not have their embryos discarded um, or deemed non-viable because the reproductive technology world is so accustomed to maximizing their outcomes that they don't want a suboptimal embryo involved in the process. So um, a lot of my Christian friends who have gone through this have had their eyes open that this was perilous for the children involved.
1: One of the things that um, I thought about that was mentioned in the book is that when you create these zygotes and then you Let's say you know, as the example, you have six and then you implant two, but you have these four left over they're but they're all the same age they the the other four just come along later, and i never I had never really put that together, and you know what um I wonder what harm is done to those that are just now
2: on ice and just waiting right you know um Andy Cohen is. I don't know, early fifties, he's a TV host, um, gay guy, had two, he's now had two children through surrogates Um, and beautiful babies. Um, I think that they are like three years old and one year old now, or maybe his daughter is not even one year old yet, but you know, he's got several remaining embryos on ice, full biological siblings of the two that he's raising, I believe. And he was saying just the other day, um, yeah, you know, maybe someday my kids will thaw out their siblings and they can raise them. And, you know, they would be raising, (laughs) I feel like they would be raising their siblings who are exactly the same age chronologically, but 20 years younger than them. Right. And I'm like, great. Well, then they can walk their siblings through the mother hunger, how to deal with the mother hunger, which is what children experience when they don't have a mom is this craving for maternal love and attention and connection. And they can help them through the Identity struggles and the genealogical bewilderment that so many kids that are created through sperm and egg donation experience. This, this nobody looks like me. I don't know where I belong. Like, um, like where do I get my features from? You know, some of these these kids are like I can't even look at the mirror because I look like an alien to myself. Um, so I'm like, and you know, and then they can introduce their biological siblings to their what eighty year old father, right? So these babies are just born and their dad's eighty. I mean, it's just dystopic, the kind of scenarios that are playing out because we are making babies in laboratories.
0: We have a couple of questions um, on the stream that I'd love to go to. And uh, the first one is uh, from both Laura and Elaine. We're asking the same question about uh, snowflake babies. The premise is that each embryo will be destroyed if not adopted. These snowflake adoptions, do you have any thoughts about that?
2: Yeah. I have a section in my book about embryo adoption. Um, We don't have a lot of, so what I, what I think is the most important thing is to hear from the kids because all of us can talk about all of these things and we all do, right? Almost everything that you're going to hear about marriage and divorce and surrogacy and polygamy, it's all going to be from the adult's perspective and what the adults want. And so what I really try to do is give you the kids perspective, tell you what the kids want, tell you about their struggles. And so that's what we've done. You know, we've got an entire chapter on divorce of kids who experienced divorce and what that was like for them. We've got an entire chapter on sperm and egg donation An entire chapter on on surrogacy. Um, We don't have a lot of kids that were donated as embryos. Um, That is a newer practice, just like surrogacy. We don't have as many voices of surrogate born children because it's newer because our species makes it very, very difficult to create motherless children. And that should give us some kind of pause about whether or not we should be doing it. And so we don't have a lot of experience with embryo adoption and embryo donation um, because you're not supposed to be able to acquire somebody else's unborn child, gestate it and and give it life. So we do have a section in there about um, embryo adoption. And the summary is, of those four choices that the American Society of Reproductive Medicine gives you, they violate children's right to life and right to their mother and father, right? Um, and the real answer to embryos that are in storage is implant them and raise them. Those are your children. It is not somebody else's job to implant and raise those kids. It is the parent's job who made the children to raise the children. And just like I'm sure your pro-life warrior said last week, I only got to listen to part of it. A great way to figure out whether or not you should do it in abortion is to ask whether or not you should do it to your two-year-old. Can I just like hand my, my two-year-old off to somebody else and let them raise it? If, if the answer is no, then you probably should not do that to your children in the freezer either, right? But there are times where there really is no other option right the mom has now she's now 55 and has had hy- hysterectomy right she cannot carry the children um or maybe the mother has died um or maybe they cannot find the parents maybe these children have been frozen for 20 years i don't know and in that case the most child honoring option is embryo adoption um not embryo donation not a property transfer but for the adults who seek to raise the child to go through all of the vetting and screening that adoptive parents have to go through, right? That's actually the right way to do. If you're going to raise a child that's not biologically yours, you don't have a right to that child. That child has a right to parents. And so the adults have to do the hard thing by undergoing screening and vetting and background checks and home studies and references to prove that they are going to be able to love and protect this child as if the child had been born to them.
0: But that's not a process that's in place. Or IVF or surrogacy.
2: So absolutely not. No, 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 no. There is no su- no. And that is why that is why third party reproduction is so drastically different from adoption. Because if you can, if you've got the money, you get the kid. It does not matter if you're related to them or not. Nobody's doing background checks or screenings or home studies. We've got situations in surrogate. Pregnancies where people are mass producing children um, through multiple different surrogates. We have people that created surrogate-born children explicitly for the purpose of of preying on them and abusing them. And it's it it takes place because number one, nobody's even tracking um, these adults. We're not following up on them at all. Not like we do with adoption. And there's no background checks, right? If the adults have the money, they get the kid. It is so drastically different from adoption. So when it comes to embryo adoption, there are a few embryo adoption agencies in the United States. And that is the way to go versus just donating. Um, And then as much as possible, you want an open adoption, just like in the traditional adoption world, we have swung towards open adoption because even adopted children value and need as many connections as possible with their first family Children who are created through sperm and egg donation and now embryo adoption, they also need information about their biological parents. They also, as much as possible, need access to their two genetic parents. So in these open, in these adoption, embryo adoption situations, hopefully there will be an open adoption arrangement because that kid is going to have questions. Um, Just like adopted kids have questions and that kid's going to deserve answers.
1: In the book, you um, touch on a few stories of cases where people were not background checked and how it did not end well, um, you know, overall. And it for me, it just really opened my eyes to the fact that, you know, there's a whole, you know, situation happening where people can buy and or sell children. And no one is looking at who is doing the the buying. Who are right. who are these kids going home with?
2: That's we right. Have, what? And a lot of times they cross international borders. You know, surrogacy is illegal throughout most of Europe. It's considered a human rights violation because it's a human rights violation. And so, what we have because we've got this wild west in different states in the United States, you have couples from Spain or. Um, Brazil, who who come here, custom order their children, and then fly home with them, and so um, not only are we not background checking these people, like it's 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 almost indistinguishable from inter, like international child trafficking. Like actually, like people have been stopped because it's so similar to a trafficking situation. In fact, um, here in the United States, um, there was a fertility lawyer named Teresa Erickson, who was making all of these surrogacy contracts and arrangements where she would get a surrogate pregnant, I think in Ukraine, somewhere Eastern Europe. um, And with whoever, whatever, whatever embryo doesn't even matter. And then when the baby was about six months along, she would say, oh, she would tell adopt, she would tell parents here in the United States, oh, the parents of this surrogacy arrangement backed out, do you guys want to take on this surrogate pregnancy? And so they'd sign a contract when the baby was six months along and the parents would fly home with the baby, right? Unrelated, an unrelated child. And that was illegal, but not because the adults were taking home a child that wasn't related to them. It was illegal because the contract was signed after the babies were conceived not before. And so it's actually illegal to sell your children here and throughout most of the world. But in surrogacy, As long as you sign the contract before the child is conceived, that's just helping someone build a family. But if it's after the child's conceived, you will be arrested for child trafficking. So you have to ask whether or not a process that is so similar to child trafficking, is that really something that we should be encouraging or participating in? I I saw a tweet
0: um, from you some months ago, um, Dave Rubin, who is a popular conservative commentator. I believe he's employed by the Daily Wire um, which is a conservative news outlet but he is in a I hesitate to call it a marriage but I'll, I'll forego that in a gay marriage and he was announcing, making a birth announcement of two children. They have two different surrogates and these children are going to be born within a month or two of each other. Um, You Made a very astute tweet about it that got quite a lot of traction because many people, even many conservatives, were congratulating Dave Rubin and um praising this because this type of reproductive technology allows for maybe what we could call non traditional families or the modern family and um. I think that that is a sentiment of, well, what about the adults in the equation? What about mm-hmm. their rights? What about their desire to have a child? And I guess I'm just wondering if you might comment on on that type of situation or sentiment,
2: yeah. Um, Yeah. Dave Rubin works for the blaze, um, but he just did did a long podcast with Jordan Peterson on the daily wires platform about this over the last week. Um, It was very instructive, actually. Like, I'm like, I really would like to just do a critique of that interview because they touch on so many important points, but um, let's talk, let's just zone in a little bit more on surrogacy. So what surrogacy does is it splices what should be one woman, a mother into three Optional and purchasable women, the genetic mother who is the egg donor, the birth mother who's the surrogate, and the social mother who is going to be the daily presence, the daily maternal presence in the child's life. Now, children need to have all of these women in one woman. And if they don't, the child is going to experience loss, right? If these three women are not found in the same person, the child's going to experience loss. And as we talked about in adoption, sometimes that happens due to tragedy and we mourn. But now it's happening through surrogacy and we're celebrating it as progress. So what Dave Rubin has done is it's so fascinating because he said, well, it was really important for his husband is named David. It was really important for David and I to have biological children like that was really important to us. And you'll often hear that, right? Well, we just wanted a biological child. So right there, the adults are recognizing biology matters to them. And yet, they're expecting that biology will not matter to their kids; that their kids are going to be just fine, being completely separated from their genetic mother. Right? Biology for me, but not for these. Kind of how that sounds to me. Um, and now they're renting the womb of two different women, right? So the children are one of them is going to be the genetic child of Dave, and one's the genetic child of David Janet, his husband, um, and so it's they both Dave have been and three. David. Dave and David. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. One of, one of the pitfalls of marrying someone of the same sex is you might marry someone with the same name. So um, the babies have the same genetic mother. So they are going to be half siblings, right? And now they both are going to develop a bond with their birth mother. And that bond is really important, especially if you're in the pro-life world, you know, this, right. If you're meeting with women who have unplanned pregnancies, you're saying you're not going to be a mother. You are a mother. You're already a mother. And that baby needs you. And that baby loves you. In fact, you're the only person that baby knows. And so you encourage the development of that maternal bond. And that bond matters to the baby, right? When the baby is born, um, they don't know that they're not related. They don't even care that they're not genetically related to the birth mother. What they know is it's her voice, her smell, her milk, her body. It is it is that person that sues the baby. And when you separate that bond and hand the child over to somebody else, that is what adoptees call a primal wound. Something that many adoptees would say that hindered my future attachment and bonding and tr- ability to trust. Because that child had been develop- developing a bond for nine and a half months, and now they start over. Right now, all the other kids have a head start on them, and they start from square one. That is not inconsequential. Um, so in the Dave Rubin's situation, the children are going to lose their genetic mother. The children are going to lose their birth mother and the children will be raised without a mother at all. So they're going to lose all three of these mothers, all three of these mothers that they desperately need, crave long for and have a right to. And I was listening to Dave Rubin's interview with Jordan Peterson about. How I listened husband-
0: to that too. Yeah. And it it was interesting. And um, it, you ever want to do a stream about, it? I'm going to volunteer my husband right now to help you do it? Because I mean, I think it would be interesting to have you comment on that video. But well, one of the lines that I remembered is Dave Rubin was like, well, I got two freezers full of breast milk. That's right. And wow. so it's not that the, and he says, and, and his husband has been researching all this skin to skin contact and all of this. So I don't know if they're going to try to simulate breastfeeding. I don't know what's going to happen there.
2: I'm sure they're not going to simulate breastfeeding in terms of like, but, you know, but what they've, what they recognize and you know, what I heard is you've taken the eggs from one woman and, and this is their, they've attempted this before. So I don't know if they have the same egg donor or not, but they've taken eggs from at least one woman. They're using the womb of two different women. If they have two freezers of breast milk, they're taking breast milk from Many, many women, it takes a long time to build up that much breast milk. I, I know because I donated my breast milk to a friend w- who was adopting um, and it takes a long time to build up two freezers of breast milk. So, and then David Janet's mother is going to be there. They're going to have nurses at night. I mean, they have had an army of women that they have required to create motherless children, right? Do you know how many women they've had to involve to make motherless children? <gasps> <laughs> um, yeah, babies require mothers and they are using the bodies of women, paying for the bodies of women, paying for the products of women, um, in so many ways so that they can make a family that forms to their romantic attractions rather than a family that is around a child's right to their mother and father. So yes, that, that, that whole video, I do need to find a place to, um, to talk about it because they, they hit on some of the biggest themes that people tend to have questions about.
1: I think this is why your book is so important because it really hits on the, the truth of them before us at all costs, them before us adults do the hard things. We do not require children to do the hard things And, you know, the separation, the mother hunger, father hunger, um, you know, the wounds that are created and the questions that are created all cause children to do the hard thing. Um, What would you say to Christians who have participated in in IVF or surrogacy or are considering it?
2: Um, If you're considering it. Uh, you need to read the book. Um, we have put all of the studies that we have on um, the harms, the risks, but mainly you need to hear from the kids themselves. You need to hear from the kids, right, who have had to sacrifice. Um, and we don't spend as much time just talking about IVF in the book, um, because I believe that there are ways that you can use IVF that don't violate children's right to their mother and father or right to life. But if you're considering using a third party to reproduce, that is a hard no. Literally what you're saying is, this cross is too heavy for me here kid, you take it instead. That's what you're saying. I so desperately want a baby and I want a biological connection with a child, um, but I'm gonna insist that you sacrifice your biological connection with a parent so I can have what I want. And then read the stories of the kids in the book and see, do they care? Do they ever think about it? Do they wonder about it? And the answer is almost every night, right? That many of these kids will say, who's my mother? Do I know her? I wonder if I've passed her on the street today. You know, do we both like Thai food? I love Thai food, but nobody else in my family likes Thai food. Maybe it's because I got it from my mom. Many of them will go on protracted searches for their biological mother or biological father. Many of them have a dozen or a hundred half siblings that they may never meet. But once they take their ancestry test um, and get their DNA results, ding, oh, they suddenly have 22 siblings that they didn't know about and they find another one every couple months. Like what we're doing right now is such a massive human experiment um, and kids are bearing the brunt of it. So I would just encourage you to look at this from the child's perspective. I know that, that my friends who have struggled with infertility, it's all they can think about. It's the only thing that they want in life. It's very, very hard to consider that the answer might be no, but the answer cannot be to have a child shoulder a load because you really, really want something. And I'll say, you know, we haven't talked a whole lot about some of the other issues in the book, but in this world of putting children first, no adult gets a pass no adult gets a pass. At some point, every adult is going to have to do something hard so that children don't lose their right to their mother and father. You know, the I've got a friend who is so beautiful, wonderful, educated. She would be an incredible mother and she's never met Mr. Right. Um, and I, she has had people come, just like get a sperm donor, no big deal. Right. And she longs to be a mom and she would be an incredible mother, but she's like, I can't, Can't do that, right? So it's a huge sacrifice for her to give up her desire to be a mother, at least at this point, um, so that she doesn't create a fatherless child. When I'm not doing this, I am counseling couples in my husband's office. You know, he's a pastor, we do tons of marriage counseling. Do you know how hard it is to keep a marriage together? Do you know how hard it is to work through the things that married couples struggle with? Um, there's dozens of things that could just fracture your marriage just like that. Do you know how hard it is to just stay? Even when you want to run um, the infertility, you know, couples that struggle with infertility, they have to sacrifice. People who experience same-sex attraction, they have to sacrifice. Like, do you see that this view of prioritizing children's rights? People with unplanned pregnancies, you know, the mom and dad who aren't married, who suddenly have a baby, they have to do the hard thing by committing to one another. So the baby has the mom and dad every day. All of the things that we are talking about is going to require incredible sacrifice on behalf of adults. But the only other option is for the kid to sacrifice. And I think that's injustice. That's an injustice. If you're going to insist that a child sacrifice for you because something is hard in your life, that is an injustice. That is not what a just society does. A just society says the strong sacrifice for the weak, we don't make the weak sacrifice for the strong. And that is what we have been doing in every every issue of marriage and family. That's such a good That's, word. That is. Because this is an issue. And
0: I like that lens of looking at it as a justice issue of, you know, just extending the, the parental. Parents need to do hard things. Adults have to do hard things. Sometimes people stay married because even if it's difficult, because they know their kids will have a better shot at a better life. Um, if, you know, we keep working on the marriage, we keep trying again, we tr- keep, um, working on that. All right. We're going to do, do a few more questions here. Um, Eva has a question. Uh, what are your views on a relative, like a sister being a surrogate for you because you cannot conceive?
2: Um, no, (laughs) there's no situation where you're going to, whether it's paid, whether it's altruistic, whether it's a family member, whether it's a woman, a Brown woman in Sri Lanka who really needs the money. No, you are always asking the child to sacrifice for you. And I don't know. I mean, for those of you that are listening, I, you know, when my second daughter was born, it was a very rushed delivery and it was traumatic for both of us. Like I was, I was kind of dazed and spinning. She was purple. Uh, you know, at first, like it was very rushed, but she was wailing. She was wailing. And it took me a while to kind of come to, and they brought her over. I mean, I've never heard a newborn scream like that. My husband was like, know oh, what to do. Um, and they brought her over and they put her on my chest And I started to sing to her because I had a two year old. We were watching the Prince of Egypt, you know, the entire pregnancy and they put her on my chest and I sang, hush now my baby, be still love, don't cry. And she just was silent because she's like, finally, something that I know. And it was me. And it was my presence that calmed her. Um, not her biological fathers, right? And if she had been created through a donor egg, she isn't, that donor egg is just one of 7 billion people. She doesn't know who that person is. It is the surrogate that she has bonded to. It is the surrogate that makes her feel safe. It is the surrogate who is her birth mother. And so when you ask a child to sacrifice that bond because you want a baby, that's an injustice actually, according to some of the research that we quote in the book, the child has no other way to process that except a death. It is like the death of the only person that they know. Um, And think about it, like surrogates um, have hundreds of relationships, like different people in their life that they're connected to. We profile several surrogates that bond so intensely with the baby that they say, I'm not handing this kid over. Like, I love this child. I've bonded with this baby. And if surrogates and if mothers feel that way, and we have hundreds of relationships, do you think that the baby can just get over losing the relationship with the only parent that they know when they're so developmentally fragile? Like, I think it's hard for us to understand what we're asking the child to give up. Um, and adoptees have been talking about it for a long time. Um, adoptees aren't shy these days about the harm and the longing that they have to know who their birth mother is and why she relinquished them. Um, And many of them feel like it impacted their future relationships because that maternal bond was severed. So no, you should never use somebody else's womb to gestate a child, no matter how much you want them. You're always asking the child to sacrifice something that they need and have a right to. Mm.
0: Um, we've got a, a question on um, the CFB Facebook stream. We're going to go to that one. Uh, what about children of divorce or are separated by abuse? Not all marriages are held together by maternal or paternal
2: love. Yeah. So we have an entire chapter on divorce. Divorce is the original redefinition of marriage, Right we used to have this idea that divorce, that marriage was permanent. And that was really important for kids because like I said, kids don't just need their mom and dad when they're two months old or two years old or 12 years old, right? They need their parents permanently. And marriage, used to have carry with it this idea that it was going to be permanent. Now, we've always made exceptions. Even Christ made exceptions um, when it comes to marriage. Um, We, in this country, used to have a model of divorce called at-fault divorce, where if one of the parents were found to be at fault of abuse or adultery or abandonment or addiction, that the innocent spouse would then be favored in court proceedings and, and receive a lot more social support. And so there are times where divorce may be necessary, but that's not the majority of divorces today. Today, about 70% of divorces uh, break up low conflict marriage, not where there was abuse, adultery, abandonment, addiction, but simply because adults fell out of love. And so we've restructured the way we talk about divorce now to just be like, well, if it ceases to make you happy, then it ceases to be a marriage, right? If you're not happy anymore, you can walk away from the marriage. And that's incredibly detrimental to children. There are times where the marriage really is abusive and one or two needs to get out. And in those situations, I sure wish that judges could favor the innocent spouse. But these days what happens is often the spouse who's misbehaving the most, who's committing adultery or has the lowest commitment to the marriage, often has the most power in the divorce proceedings You've got one spouse that's desperately trying to do the right thing, keep things together, shelter the children from what's going on. And a no-fault situation requires that everything gets split 50-50. So there's no reward for raising your level of behavior to one that actually could sustain a marriage. So um, I really hope that we see massive divorce reform, not to the point where you can't get out of a marriage if there really is somebody that is seriously at fault, But right now we've got a culture of disposable marriage and it has absolutely wrecked children.
1: Here's a question from Elaine Voss on the Center for Biblical Unity Facebook page. She says, how do we disciple or inform or care for our family members whose families came about with interventions like this?
2: Yeah. So in all of these situations that we've talked about, Um, Whether it's like two moms next door raising a a child using a sperm donor or um, our friends who got divorced and, you know, now their kids are in the midst of this incredible turmoil um, or somebody else that, you know, heterosexual couple who used an egg donor or something like that. So all of us are always going to be surrounded by children who are in situations where their parents didn't do their hard thing their parents refuse to do the hard thing and instead are asking them to do the hard thing. And so I think that there's two things that we can do for those kids. Number one, for the kids especially I you know, they are my primary concern. draw near, pull them in, fold them into your world right The kids whose parents are divorcing are going to need some quiet, some stability. Um, so once you pull them in you can practice what I call careful, validation, right? Never the kind of thing where you're throwing their parents under the bus. But um, you know, for example, we had a boy with two moms who was hanging around for quite a while, um, a couple years ago, and he just would follow my husband around because he had father hunger. This is when children don't have dads, they find a man to love them. And sometimes it's not the right kind of men, but you'll see them gravitating towards all the men in their life. So he was following my husband around um, and said something about, something really casual, like, ah, man, it's just crazy. Like that. Your, your son has his dad here all the time. And I said, you are such a good kid. You know, wherever your dad is, he's missing out because you're a great kid, right? Like he just let me into that world a little bit of, I, I long for this. This is amazing. Right. So validate that because so much of the time, what all of these kids are hearing is you're so lucky to have two moms or Well, your parents might be divorcing, but you should be happy that they're happy, or you don't want to live. I mean, you would be really unhappy if your parents had to stay together, right? Like all of these messages that in essence say that the kids need to support the adult's choices. Very few people that are validating the fact that this is hard. This is painful. There's a real loss involved for kids. So careful validation, not demonizing the parents at all, but just a recognition of You know, I do this with my adopted son too. You know, it's hard. He doesn't have the same origin stories. His story begins with loss. We paint it in as positive a a light as we can, but there's still loss there. And so I carefully validate and say, I bet your birth mom did the best that she could because you were born full term. She must've eaten so well during her pregnancy. Um, But I understand why you're sad because it's hard not to look like your mom. And, you know, it's hard to not look like everyone else in the family. So carefully validate. Um, The other thing is bring them into your world because you actually can show them what they were made to have. And the best illustration I have for this is my husband who grew up in a, my parents divorced, but it was an amicable divorce. His parents divorced and it was war. Um, And so he bounced between homes with different girlfriends stepfathers, stepmothers kind of coming in and out. And when he was seven, he met a friend in his neighborhood um, named Chad, and he went to Chad's house. And after a week or so, he was like, what is going on at this house? The dad and mom both live here all the time. And the kids are also here all the time. Like they never go anywhere else on the weekend. And the whole family eats dinner together every night and nobody's angry and nobody throws things. And he, as a seven-year-old remembers standing in their living room, bowing that when he said, when I become a dad, my house is going to be like Chad's house. It's not going to be like my house. Like he didn't even know that there was another world, right? He didn't know that there was a place where moms and dads could love each other and love their kids and stay in the same house. And there was joy and harmony. And um, and I call that the straight stick, right? Be the straight stick. And um, it was like DL Moody who said, you don't know how crooked a stick is until you lay a straight stick next to it. So if you can just show the child what they are made for and what they deserve, that is going to go a very, very long way in terms of their healing and future, and future health.
0: Very good. Um, I'm wondering, we've got one more comment we're gonna go to in a minute, but I'm just wondering, if, if you could sit down, if Katie Faust could sit down with a pastor and talk to them over coffee and give them a word of like what you wish they would do to disciple the people in their church um, with this message, like what, what would
2: that be? Don't you compromise one iota on sex and marriage. Don't compromise at all speak up and speak out. Other than a revival in this country, the thing that could save this nation is a return to God's design for sex and marriage. Everything outside of God's design for sex and marriage insists that children sacrifice for adults, whether it's cohabitation or no-fault divorce or third-party reproduction, which is functionally adultery right? It's not adultery in terms of the adult bonds, but it produces a child that is separated from their mother or father. And that was one of the reasons why God prohibited adultery is so that children would not be separated from their mother or father. So I just, I think that the biggest thing is stop bowing, scraping, and apologizing. Recognize that defending marriage and defending God's design for sex and marriage is defending children. And your failure, you shrinking back from speaking about that is creating child victims. So don't you even go for one second to the this idea that God is an anti-gay bigot or whatever because Jesus insisted that marriage be between a man and a woman. Jesus insisted that marriage be between a man and a woman because in Malachi it says that he made the two one because he's seeking godly offspring. God cares about children. He wants them to grow and be shepherded so they can become godly and he understands that's very hard to do when you don't have total buy-in lifelong commitment from the man and the woman. So I just think that's the biggest thing is sex and marriage. God's designed for sex and marriage. It's what children needs and it's what's, it's what the nation needs.
0: There we go. We need some courage. We need some courageous pastors.
2: I don't have my fan in black church.
1: When somebody say something good, you get a fan or we got a fan. You see, <laughs> I'm a fan you. Yes. You better come on. Yes. (laughs) Cause that, that's what we need to hear. Like we need the bonus. We need pastors who will not compromise on the truth. Um, Our last question comes from Susanna.
2: Uh, Let's see here. She
0: wants to know, are there other infertility interventions that don't end in the termination of, of the child? Yeah.
2: So first of all, don't you, don't go to the IVF clinics. Like you, if you can't get pregnant after a year, they're like, get you into the IVF pipeline. If you can't get pregnant after a year, there might be something that needs to be fixed. You might, your body might need to be healed so that you can conceive naturally. So there is um, something called NAPRO technologies, N-A-P-R-O, natural procreative technologies, and they seek to resolve the underlying fertility issues. They're actually going to see what parts of your body need to be healed so you can conceive naturally. Depending on the issue, they have similar or much higher rates of success than IVF. So your your body is made to have babies. Now it's very tough if you you miss that critical fertility window in your 20s and early 30s, but turn to your body first, like first take a look and resolve that. Um, If you do end up going to IVF, what I've heard from my friends who have used it is you had better be very, very clear about your lines before you go in because they will push and they will try to erase them because it's bad for business. Um, It's bad for their bottom line. They don't want lower rates of success, right? They all kind of measure their rates of success of live births and things like that. And if you're choosing suboptimal embryos, that doesn't help them. Uh, So you need to be very, very clear about what your lines are before you go into that clinic.
1: Awesome. Katie, thank you so much. This has been, sorry, I'm just not even looking at the right camera, girl. I'm still thinking about all that you said. Um, (laughs) It's it's been been a lot. A lot, but it's been super helpful. And if you don't have um, us before, sorry, them before us, Katie's book, please go and order it. You need to read it. This book changed the way that I think um, about surrogacy and IVF and just children's rights overall. And I I, I have always loved kids. And so mm-hmm. to find something that would even challenge me, um, this, this book is just phenomenal. So go out and get it. Katie, thank you so much. We appreciate all of your time, your research, your fight for life and for children. And anything else you want to...
0: No, so I, before we... I'm just so glad to be able to finally do the show and get Katie here. And I think it's an important topic. It's, someone, it's a topic I've wanted to do for a long time. Just came along to have the, finally the right guest to mm-hmm. be able to do it. So, so glad for your ministry.
2: Good. Thank you. Well, and let me conclude by saying, may the Center for Biblical Unity become the dominant voice in all of our conversations about race, especially in the church. Um, I'm so grateful for you. May your footprint greatly increase.
1: Thank Amen. you. Thank you. All right. Take I'll care. be texting you later on, girl. <laughs> Bye. May BFFs Bye. now. All right. <laughs> Bye. Oh boy, that was that was so good. So good. It's so good. You know, it's hard because, and I'll I'll just be honest. Like, there was a time when I considered. You know, not that like, long ago. Not, well, I mean, it wasn't yesterday. Don't no, get people no, no, the wrong. No, idea. but I mean, it wasn't, but,
0: 15, years no, it wasn't either. 15
1: years ago. No, it wasn't 15 years ago. No. And I think that, you know, definitely it was before I, I moved to Africa, um, to South Africa. But in the time of consideration and having one friend in particular who was really encouraging that, mm. um, you know, it was like I was working, I had a good job, I had a good salary. There was no reason why I couldn't.
0: You love kids. You would make a great mom.
1: And you know, I kind of think so too. I think I, you know, I'm the really cool auntie. I'm my my nephew's favorite auntie. They don't know it, but you know.
0: I think I think you would make a great mom, and you know, it just you never found the right man to get married, and you know, it just is what it is. But I think that, uh,
1: you know, it's it really the way she lays it out. It it just makes a lot of sense. Things that I hadn't considered, but I told her like I was honest. I was like, I don't like this. I don't like your book. I don't like. I was like, I don't like what what I I've like read so I don't like your POV. <laughs> I really. I, I. She was like, well, what is it that you don't like, or what? Do you, what is it that you want to say? And I was just like, you. It's just so much that I just I can't even get the words out. Like I was angry for a bit, and I. But I told her like, we were pretty clear, and um, I remember having a call with her, and she just kind of answered some of my questions but at the end I think it wasn't so much that I disagreed with the fact that this was harming a child and I think this is where many people need to get to it is the questions that you have with God of like mm. if I put myself fully in in alignment where I am not going to um unjustly harm a child or um, take something away from a, a child or put my need before a kid, that means I have to have some other questions with God.
0: Like, why didn't I ever find the right man?
1: Yeah. And if you're infertile, like, why is, you know, why is my husband's sperm count low? Why do my eggs not work or whatever, you know, whatever that situation is, why did I get cervical cancer? Why, you know, like there's a lot of different questions that people will have to ask and grapple with and understand that this, even in your grappling, this isn't the answer. But that's the hard part, and that's the part that I think um, IVF or surrogacy or you know any of those those um, methods really help you avoid because now I don't have to ask the question. Now I can just I can do it myself. I can go right here and we can get that fixed.
0: Yeah, that's pretty powerful. Uh, we have planned to do a tweet, but it's the the hour is late. Should we skip that? It is okay. It is all, all right.
1: Time. Um, so should we just end? I kind of feel like, yeah, all right, I feel well, like this said- is, this is a good a good ending place, yeah, um, I think Katie really Katie's last word was you know, just really powerful and and you know, how do we stand <laughs> for kids and so, yeah, I'm just super thankful for her,
0: yeah, and it's it's been um, I just appreciate your transparency and just you know, just sharing a little bit of your own journey through this issue it's it's
1: hard it is I mean it is hard but I I think that she's right and it's so funny that that her um I don't want to call it like her tagline but one of the themes that is repeated in the book is that adults do hard things but that's something that we say here yeah we tend to say well Christians do hard things adults do hard things and when I heard that on um on the audiobook I was like oh my gosh like yes we do do the hard things um but if if we don't For some, it needs to be lined out a little bit more clearly. For me, I was one of those people. It needed to be lined out more clearly like, oh, this really is a violation. This really does cross a line. She talks in the book about, um, you know, sometimes sitting with the reality that this is, I don't want to say like the lot or the the cards you've been dealt, but this is what the Lord has allowed in your life and getting in a conversation with him about that rather than trying to play God and fix it yourself. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's hard. Like if there's, if there is nothing else that humans share is that there are times and places in life that are hard. And I am thankful that we serve a God who is merciful and gracious.
0: Good word. Well, we hope you've enjoyed the show. We hope you'll share it. Uh like it. And, um, just let us know what you think and uh, hope you enjoyed the new set. Yay! We're going to be off for two weeks because we're going to be traveling. Uh, so we'll see you at the end of the month with a show with our friend, Dr. Neil Shenvey, yes. God willing, on queer theory. Uh, and um, so look forward to that. And we will see you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com
1: and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and
0: the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows.
1: We'll see you next week.